0: Hello, my name is Misty Denman, and I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team, and so glad to be with you here today. I want to say good morning to my people at the West Campus as well, and we are marching toward the end of the book of Acts, and another year of studying God's Word together. Deb promised us at the beginning of the semester that Acts would be an epic journey, and hasn't it been? We have had adventure and intrigue and joy and tragedy. And through all of that woven throughout has been the awesome power and grace of God as he established his New Testament church beginning in Jerusalem. And now we're seeing it going all the way out to the end of the earth. We've seen the Holy Spirit sweep through groups of people. We've seen Individuals trust Christ with a saving faith, like Paul and the um, Ethiopian eunuch who placed his faith in Christ after Philip shared the gospel with him. Paul has completed his epic, especially for the time, uh, three missionary journeys. He's made his way back to his spiritual home in Jerusalem, where he was arrested, as he knew he would be. And today, we have courtroom drama, first century style. Paul has hearings today before three Roman officials and Luke records many specific details about these events and the people involved in these situations. And I don't think as Luke wrote that he had any idea that... His writings would become part of this whole genre that I think we um, very much love and follow of courtroom dramas. As I began thinking about Paul's courtroom experience when I was studying these chapters, I realized how much of our entertainment sort of focuses around this kind of story. When I was a kid, I would sometimes watch Perry Mason in reruns, and I... um, Googled courtroom dramas, and a number of people have all these different top 10 lists of the best ones that have been on television. And actually, Perry Mason makes almost the top of every list. I don't remember it that well, but I know I watched a lot of People's Court as a kid. Does anybody remember Judge Wapner? I see a lot of heads shaking. I watched Night Court. Um, Then later, there was LA Law and Matlock and JAG, and there's been a lot more since then. I just haven't been able to watch many of those. And then there are movies as well. And one of those movies happens to be one of my favorite all-time movies, which is A Few Good Men. That is great courtroom drama. And I will confess to you that over and over in my head, as I was studying these chapters, I kept picturing Paul as Jack Nicholson with his crew cut, sitting on a table and like pounding his fist saying, you want the truth? You can't handle the truth, King Agrippa. And really, King Agrippa couldn't handle the truth, but we'll talk more about that later. Um, Open up your Bibles with me to Acts 24. We have got lots of ground to cover today. As you're turning there, let's recap how we find Paul in the custody of Governor Felix. While Paul was in Jerusalem, remember that he had been arrested in the temple by the Jewish leadership. There had been an organized plot to Kill Paul by this mob of 40 Jewish men, many of them leaders, um, as he was transported from where he was in prison to where he um, would have a trial. Paul's nephew found out about that plot. He tells the tribune about it, and that tribune, in order to um, protect Paul's life and really his own job, because he needed to keep Paul safe... Um, ordered Paul to be transported under this great number of Roman soldiers from Jerusalem to Caesarea. As chapter 24 opens, Paul is being held as a prisoner there, awaiting a trial. The high priest Ananias has come to Caesarea with a lawyer named Tertullus to present their case against Paul in front of Governor Felix. Now Felix was the Roman governor over this geographic area and one of the duties of a Roman governor at the time would to be to preside over court cases as a judge. There will be many things today that you will find familiar about the Roman court system. But one thing that was different is that we like to separate the executive and judicial branches of government. They were really one. A um, governor or an overseer of an area would also act as judge. With that in mind, let's look at Acts 24. Let's start in verse 2. We won't be able to read it all today, but we're going to read right now verses 2 through 9. So follow along with me. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus the lawyer began to accuse him, Paul, saying... "'Since through you, Felix, we enjoy much peace, "'and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, "'reforms are being made for this nation "'in every way and everywhere we accept this "'with all gratitude. "'But to detain you no further, "'I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, "'for we have found this man a plague, "'one who stirs up riots among all the Jews "'throughout the world and is a ringleader "'of the sect of the Nazarenes. "'He even tried to profane the temple, "'but we seized him.' By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things would be so. Unfortunately, Tertullus is that kind of lawyer that gives them all a bad name. He was heavily flattering Felix here. Had a random Jewish man or woman walked by and heard what Tertullus had just said with Felix. It would have been a bad situation. The Jews really hated Felix. Contrary to him being a reformer um, or someone who did great things for the Jewish people, he was known to be an unfair, tyrannical ruler over Judea. Uh, He was personally inept and majorly corrupt. But the goal here is to get a ruling against Paul. So even this council that is representing the high priests and elders is willing to ingratiate himself to Felix. Tertullus lays out these three charges against Paul. One, he's been stirring up riots. Number two, he's the ringleader of the Christian sect. And number three, he desecrated the temple. Of these three charges, the one that would have really mattered to Felix was the charge of rioting, which would have been really a matter of sedition or treason against the Roman government. Amy told us last week that the Roman Empire and government highly valued peace in the land. So any kind of rioting that would have disturbed the peace would have been um, a major crime. And that's the one that Felix it would matter to Felix most. Paul's allowed to make his defense against the charges, and he does so in verses ten through twenty-one. He proclaims his innocence before governor felix he had only been in jerusalem for 12 days that wasn't enough time to gather a group of men stir them up to create a riot Uh, there's no evidence that any riots ever took place because they didn't paul was simply at that temple making sacrifices uh, offerings and worshiping there was no kind of desecration going on these are totally false charges against which there can be no proof But in verse 14, Paul says this. I love that he takes every opportunity to um, talk about Jesus. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down in the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both Met God and men. When you see in this, what you see in this trial is the Jewish leadership bringing what amounts to both civil and religious charges against Paul. Paul successfully um, refutes those civil charges of rioting, and as far as the religious challenges go and charges go. The Romans don't really care or really want to get involved. They see the business of Paul as being this ringleader of the sects, and the, uh, sects, s-e-c-t-s, and the uh, <laughs> desecration of the temple as being a religious um, spat between the Jews, not a matter of Roman law and the legal precedents that proclaiming and preaching Christ crucified and resurrected. Being okay under Roman law was really established um, in chapters 18 and 19 back when Paul was arrested when those riots happened at Ephesus. Luke carefully records that again here today, that the Roman government doesn't see the practice of Christianity as unlawful. The only ones who have a problem with this are the Jewish authorities. So at this point, you might expect Felix would pound his gavel and say, case dismissed. You all get out of here. You're wasting my time. No laws have been broken. But read with me beginning in verse 22. We're in 24, 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the Tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often. And conversed with him, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So Felix is in a tough spot here. It would be politically expedient to appease the Jews and stick Paul with some kind of conviction that there are no valid legal charges against him. So what does he do? He procrastinates in deciding Paul's case. And what does Paul do while Felix is procrastinating? He uses every opportunity he has to share the gospel with Felix. We read that Felix had a rather accurate knowledge of the way he was familiar with Jewish law and with the new church and its teachings. He even seemed to have an interest in the gospel. He and his Jewish wife, Drusilla, invite Paul to share with them about Jesus And all this business about faith and salvation seems to be going well until Paul begins to make it personal. When he ties the gospel into Felix's own sin issues, Felix starts to squirm. Paul knows some things about Felix that Luke doesn't record here. Paul knows that Felix has been guilty of arranging for the murder of a Jewish high priest who um, made trouble with Felix. Paul knows that his wife here, Drusilla, is actually his third wife and she was only 16 when they met. She was married to another man and because Felix wanted her as his own, he arranged for an unlawful divorce so that they could be together. Paul's counsel regarding the gospel leading to repentance and self-control and a righteous life were tailored to his audience And although they were hard words, they would have been words of life for Felix. Paul was offering Felix that opportunity to be fully forgiven, um, to live a life of abundance and freedom through through the salvation that Jesus paid for. But Felix was not willing to admit his own shortcomings and take hold of what could have been his. Felix rejected the gospel when it became personal. Look with me at Hebrews 4.12 on your verse sheet. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It is hard work to allow the word of God to penetrate our hearts, but it is so worth it. Felix was the ultimate procrastinator. He had a difficult political situation to deal with, He was bound by the law but wanted to please the Jews. He dealt with that situation by not dealing with it. He simply let Paul waste away in prison and never made a decision. Instead, Felix leaves him in custody without a conviction. He trots him out from time to time, having a conversation with him, hoping that Paul will offer him a bribe and he can just let Paul go that way. Bribes were not how Paul rolled, so he stayed in prison all that time. Felix also had a difficult spiritual situation to deal with. He knows righteousness will require obedience to God's word, and for that, it will be hard for him. So, Felix also deals with that truth by not dealing with it. Felix had a private audience with the Apostle Paul for over two years, ample opportunity to understand and grasp the gospel that brings light. But he was unwilling to deal with the hard things in his own life, and eventually his opportunity was lost. There's a warning here for us as well. Look at Ephesians 4 on your verse sheet. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. As women of God, we must apply his word to our lives today And every day. So is there some area of your life where the Holy Spirit is pricking your conscience? Is there someone you need to make amends with? Is there somebody you need to share your faith with? Is there some place you might need to tame your tongue? Whatever it is that might be there between you and the Lord, I would encourage you to deal with it and deal with it now. Lay that at the feet of Jesus. Be willing to be obedient to him. Spiritual procrastination leads to hardness of heart, but quick obedience will always lead to his blessing. And always remember that we aren't mustering up our own righteousness and obedience and our own strength, but we have the spirit of God living in us, that Holy Spirit that we have um, learned about throughout the books of, book of Acts. It is through his power that we have that ability And desire to do what is right. Notice in verse 27 that when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. Felix left Paul in prison with no conviction for two years. And I cannot imagine that those two years were anything other than difficult, tedious, frustrating for Paul. And yet that time was not out of God's control. Had God forgotten about Paul? No. Could God have caused the situation to be different so that Paul had been released earlier? Yes. From our perspective, does it seem like those two years were a giant waste of time for a man who was on fire for the Lord and wanted nothing other than to preach the gospel to anyone who would listen? Yes. But God had a purpose and a use for Paul during that time. In our economy, it makes no sense for Paul to have been there, but in God's economy it did, or he would not have been there. Trust God's timing in your life, even when it is hard. I love the comfort and promise of Psalm 37. Look with me on your verse sheet. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. And the very last two verses in that Psalm, 39 and 40, say, The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Jesus knows you and he loves you. And he is present with you in your waiting, just like he was with Paul in prison. Okay, let's move on to chapter 25. Felix has been replaced by governor, as governor by Festus. Like Felix, Festus wants to have a good relationship with the Jewish authorities who um, don't have any governmental power, but do have influence over many of the people in the geographical area over which they rule. Right away we learn that these Jewish leaders have not given up that old plot from chapter 23 to ambush and kill Paul. They're hoping that he will travel from Caesarea to Jerusalem and they can kill him then. But instead of sending Paul back to Jerusalem, Festus invites his accusers. He's there visiting with them in Jerusalem. Instead he says, why don't you come back with me to Caesarea and we'll just try Paul there. Let's pick up in chapter 25 verse 7. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, "I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, and as you yourself, as you yourself know very well, if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar." Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you will go. Paul again refutes these false charges against him. Festus declines to hand down a verdict, and Paul appeals his case to Rome as a means of avoiding being sent back to Jerusalem, which will mean sure death. Now, it was Paul's right as a Roman citizen to have his case brought before the highest Roman authority, which would have been... Um, Caesar. And in this case, Caesar is a generic term which we really could interchange with the word king. It would have been the Holy Roman Emperor um, Emperor, who at this time was Nero. He had this right as a Roman citizen because both the charge of sedition and the charge of desecrating the temple would have carried with them a death sentence. So the emperor at this time was Nero, who is infamous as a a persecutor of Christians and a a very uh, cruel tyrant. But the year here is about 59 AD, which would have put Nero about five of his 14 years into his rule. And honestly, in the first five to six years of Nero's rule, he was a fairly peaceful um, ruler. So he didn't have the reputation that he would later have. It really was a... Probably the best case scenario for Paul um, to do at that time to go to Rome. Going to Rome would also accomplish uh, the fact that the uh, plans that Jesus had for Paul. Look with me at Acts 9:15 on your verse sheet, and then Acts 23. Back in Acts 9, the Lord said to him, "Go, for he is a choice chosen. That's speaking of Paul. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles." And kings and the children of Israel. And then in 23, the following night, the Lord stood by him, Paul, and said, Take courage, for you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. We've seen uh, Paul share the gospel with Jews and with Gentiles. And today he speaks before King Agrippa. And he sets the plan in motion to go to Rome and to speak before the emperor there. Now that Paul will go to Rome, Festus needs help with writing reasonable charges so he doesn't look like an idiot for sending him all the way to the Supreme Court, so to speak, with no real charges against him. I don't think that Festus was the sharpest knife in the drawer. I also don't think he was an awfully hard worker. Instead of trying to figure this out for himself, he goes to King Agrippa to help write formal charges against Paul. We're going to come back to who King Agrippa was, but I want us to stop and notice something here. The pagan Roman government has consistently behaved more justly toward Paul than the Jewish leadership. The Jewish leadership, these men who were supposed to be setting the standards of holiness for God's chosen people, have done nothing other than lie, cheat, and plot murder. God gave his people the Ten Commandments. He had the intention that those Ten Commandments would be obeyed. Among these Ten Commandments were do not murder and do not bear false witness. Meanwhile, the Roman government with all of its faults has at least held to a standard of justice and fairness that the Jewish leadership never did. Roman soldiers protected Paul as he was transported from Jerusalem to Caesarea. They allow him to peel his case in an attempt to not wrongly convict an innocent man. They uphold his right to a fair trial. And it makes me crazy that even after being held for two years with no conviction, he, Paul has still been treated more justly by the Romans than by God's own people who were his own people. So what's the lesson for us here? I doubt that any of us have any plots to commit murder over the next few weeks. But for those of us who bear the name of Christ, we should be above reproach in how we treat others. One of my all-time favorite verses is Micah 6, eight. Look with me at that. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. As Christians, let's be the fairest and most just people that we know. Let's examine our own hearts and actions to see if there is anything in us that needs to change so that we can be the fairest and most just people that we know. And let's do it now before it is too late. The time has come for Paul to testify before Festus and King Agrippa. Now, King Agrippa is the great-grandson. He's known as uh, uh, Herod Agrippa. He is the great-grandson of Herod the Great, the Herod who was king when Jesus was born. You'll remember that that Herod had all of the baby boys, two and under, killed, hoping that Jesus would be one of them so that Jesus wouldn't grow up to overthrow them. That wasn't the only terrible thing he did and the whole bunch of the herod family were pretty wretched people agrippa included this bernice that is here with him is not his wife but his half-sister who many believe that he had an incestuous relationship with The only good thing that can be said about the Herods is by this point in history, the Roman Empire has taken over and they actually have very little um, jurisdiction or, or rule. He just has a very small area that he is ruling over. So Agrippa isn't ruling over either Judea or Samaria where Caesarea is. But compared with Festus, he has a a strong grip on the Jewish faith. Festus calls him in for help hoping that he can help him sort of sort out what to do about Paul. Follow along with me as I read in chapter 25 beginning in verse 23. So the next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So if you love a good courtroom drama, we have one here. Agrippa, Bernice, Felix, and all the prominent men of the city come into this courtroom and all their pageantry and finery, all of that was meant to communicate one thing. They had wealth and power and status and Paul did not. Now imagine Paul, he comes in alone, he's in his prison garb. The scene is meant to shout the vast contrast in power and authority between those um, who are in charge and those who are not. Agrippa gives Paul permission to speak, and Paul does what he does best. He may not have any political power here, but I'm willing to bet he was the smartest and most determined man in that room, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And while the governor and general and royalty in that room uh, didn't understand that kind of power, um, their power, their authority had nothing on the Holy Spirit and he begins to speak, Paul addresses Agrippa specifically because he's already testified before Festus. And Festus has basically admitted he doesn't know what to do with him. And Paul weaves his personal testimony with the gospel, with perfect logic, proves his innocence once again. He begins with his history as a devout Pharisee, his personal persecution of the first converts of the Jews. He recounts his uh, first converts to Christianity. He recounts his conversion and his commissioning by Jesus. It remains important that Paul show that his authority and commissioning came straight from Jesus. He has shared his testimony numerous times in Acts. By now, we are familiar with his conversion experience. Let's pick up um, in chapter 26, beginning in verse 19. And we're going to read through the end of the chapter. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, and I am speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Notice in verse 22, I love it, that Paul says that he testifies to both great and small. In contrast to his audience who had an excessive concern with image, the Christian faith is all about the internal and not so much the external image. Paul is saying that salvation is available to both the socially great and small all the way from the queen in that room with all her finery down to the common slave who would have had um, very little status or being noticed in society. He is also saying that this, that salvation is offered to God's chosen people but also to the lowly Gentiles. Paul is juxtaposing here the inclusive message of Jesus with the exclusive attitude of those who were in the room. I don't know if his wording was caught by those who were there, but it is a powerful truth for us today that the gospel is available for all men and women, for any who would choose to believe. Festus' response to the gospel was rude interruption and just outright dismissal. Paul's mother must have drilled him in good manners when he was a kid because he doesn't respond in the same rude way. He remains respectful and on point. Festus has heard truth, but he refuses to believe. His dismissal of Paul by reason of insanity echoes the words of Jesus' own family. Read those with me in Mark three twenty one. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. It was easier to dismiss Jesus and hear Paul as insane than it was to examine one's own heart, to confess sin, and to admit the need for a savior. Festus, like Felix, had this golden opportunity to turn from darkness to the light, and he willfully chose not to. Paul seems to sense the finality of Festus rejection of the Gospel because now he turns his full attention to Agrippa, Agrippa, you believe the prophets, I know you do, and i 've shown you that Jesus is the fulfillment of those prophets and everything they said. Agrippa knows exactly what paul 's getting at. Logic at this point would demand a verdict from him of regarding jesus Agrippa 's response is scornful rejection of the gospel. King Agrippa had a Jewish heritage. He was schooled in the law. He was schooled in the prophets. He had the privilege of hearing the gospel explained by Paul, a master evangelist. His question, do you think you can persuade me to be a Christian so quickly, really reveals that he understood what Paul was saying to him. It seems like he got almost to the precipice of a trusting faith and then turned away. Some theologians think that Agrippa was embarrassed by the personal nature of Paul's urging him to trust Christ in front of that crowd. Remember that his image mattered deeply to him. Perhaps he was unwilling to align himself with the church who were hated by the Jewish establishment. Perhaps he had uh, performed some internal quick calculations, counted the cost of personally walking with Christ and decided that that cost was too high. Whatever it was... He chose not to believe. So what can we as women who do walk with God learn from King Agrippa's response to the gospel? In our postmodern world, being identified with Christ is not going to always make us popular. Living according to biblical truth will cause some to misunderstand and misalign us. Our image may suffer from time to time. But Jesus is so worth it. So stand firm in your faith. And trust the truth of 1 Peter 5.10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. There will be a day when Jesus returns when he sets all things right and every knee on that day is going to bow before him and our joy is going to be overwhelming. When we get to be counted as one of his, trust that that day is coming as we live out these hard days. In the meantime, we can be like Paul in these final verses and make it our personal mission to pray that the lost would know Jesus and to use every opportunity we have to share the gospel, inviting others to place their faith in Jesus. Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he used his own story and God's word to draw anyone who would listen to a saving faith in Jesus. We, too, have a faith story, and we have God's word those are the things that Jesus, or God uses to draw people to himself. And it is a gift to get to be part of that work. After hearing Paul out, the legal ruling is that Paul's not guilty of breaking any Roman laws. But his appeal to Caesar sets him up for a trip to Rome where he will speak before yet another king. That is coming up next week. His journey itself is really um, exciting and interesting. Please come back as we finish out um, the study of Acts. You will not want to miss it. I would pit Paul's courtroom drama and trial against any TV show or movie that I have ever seen. We have dramatic testimony. There is intrigue. There is life and death at stake. And honestly, nobody writes a better story than the men who wrote our scripture Paul's legal circumstances had him in a tight spot. But listen to what one commentator says. Actually, it was not Paul that was on trial, but his judges. For no man is ever a hearer of the message of God without thereby being brought to trial. Felix, Festus, and Agrippa may think they are determining what shall be done with the servant of the Lord, but they are rather determining what shall be done with themselves. What is of real concern is that you are answerable to God for what you hear and your answer. The answer of your heart and your life constitutes your judgment and determines your eternal future. It is a great gift and a deep privilege to have God's word so available to us. Oh, that we would be women who take hold of God's word for all it's worth who allow the Holy Spirit to transform our hearts and our lives. And because we are sinners saved by grace, we have this to look forward to. Look with me at 2 Timothy 4, 8. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only me, but also to all who have longed for his, his appearing. That's us. Praise God, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your son Jesus who died for the sins of the world and for each of us personally. I pray that each of us would be women who cling tightly to that truth today and every day and that we trust you and that we walk with you by faith and hold on to your promises. I ask for your blessing over each woman here I pray that we would be women after your own heart. It's in your holy name we pray, amen.